0: Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi.
1: We're so glad to have everyone back with us today in another episode of Ed's Up, and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Dan Worry with us. He's the Senior Director of Early Learning at the Hunt Institute and oversees the Institute's early childhood supports to state elected and administrative policymakers across the country. He's a former kindergarten teacher and school district administrator, and he served as the deputy director of South Carolina's First Steps to Readiness program, and it's the state's comprehensive public-private early learning initiatives, and he did that from 2005 to 2018. He's a past president of the South Carolina Early Childhood Association, and he was honored as South Carolina's champion for children in 2018. Dan, we're glad to have you with us today. Oh, Kathy, thank you for inviting me. You have been busy, uh, as I have seen evidence of, through all of the wonderful seminars that you all have been sponsoring over the last several months. But before we talk about that, I would just like to ask you, how did you get into the world of kindergarten teaching?
0: That's a great question. I, um, I, I actually had a, a sort of a midlife crisis at, uh, at age 22. I, um, I, my bachelor's degree is actually in broadcast journalism, uh, and I began a career in radio and it really, very much just by happenstance, I had a, a, a close family friend who uh, ran an after-school program at an elementary school, uh, who was in a real bind and needed some needed some help, and I I filled in for a couple of days and. Oh gosh, Kathy! It took it took all of about thirty seconds for me to realize I had made a terrible mistake and that I was meant to meant to work with kids. So I actually began my career in early childhood um, as an hourly childcare employee. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think is uh, sort of unique about my um, my personal career path is that, you know, I have I've had the good fortune to experience early childhood really at every level. I, I you know, I began in this hourly sort of capacity um, in sort of a childcare setting uh, while I was waiting to get into grad school to go get my teacher certification. I worked for a year as an instructional assistant in a kindergarten classroom, went and uh, taught uh, five or six wonderful years. Uh, as a kindergarten teacher, before I was uh, recruited out to be a, a school district administrator, uh, leading early childhood programs for one of the um, great uh, suburban school districts in Columbia, South Carolina, and then you know during that um, during that period actually is when when first steps began the the uh, early childhood agency in, in South Carolina, which incidentally was modeled after the Smart Start program in North Carolina, created by Governor Jim Hunt, who is the the names sake of the the Hunt Institute. And so had an opportunity. I was, uh, you know, recruited onto the onto the state board initially, in my role as a kindergarten teacher continued on the state board for a number of years. And uh, eventually, uh, with a, a new director, there was recruited in to come and serve as sort of the deputy and, and almost like the chief of staff uh, there for the agency. And I served there for gosh, almost almost fifteen years, as you mentioned. And so, uh, you know, had the good fortune to take those you know classroom experiences with kids and. Bring them up to a, a state system level, and then here for the past two and a half years, um, you know, have, uh, have transitioned to this more national work at the Hunt Institute, where you know I've had the the great fortune to be able to work with states all over the country and in, in impacting early childhood policy. So I've I've gone from uh, from from a child care setting up to uh, up to a national setting, and, and kind of every step in between.
1: Well, the first thing that jumped out as you spoke to me, was that you found your passion and it didn't take you very long at all to realize that this was what you were meant to do. And uh, so many people that we have interviewed and, and uh, shared how they came into early childhood education had a similar experience and that this was something that they didn't necessarily plan to do or expected of themselves to be interested in. And then something happened in that first experience. They were absolutely certain this is what they were to do. And so
0: their life path took that direction and it didn't ever change. So that's absolutely true. I think if you had told me in high school or even in college that I was going to go on and uh, teach kindergarten and earn a PhD in early childhood, I mean, I I wouldn't have begun to, to see that coming. It was very unexpected, but you're right. I think, you know, once I, once I had that opportunity and and felt uh, just the, the, gratification um, of, of you know, working meaningfully with kids and for kids, I, you know, I couldn't see any other path.
1: Well, since you've been doing this a while, I, I'm very interested in your take, your, your thoughts on now that we have received uh, unbelievable funding from the federal government, which we dreamed about for years, but never really thought we would see, at least in my lifetime, I never thought I would actually see this come to pass. How do you see this is some people refer to it as the new day in early care and education. What do you see about this as being a new day?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, am very hopeful that it is a new day, um, but I'm, I'm not yet a hundred percent convinced that it is for a, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, I think the, you know, the pandemic has really shown a spotlight. On the the value of uh, of early childhood education, and in particular of you know high quality childcare, I think we um, you know you see articles and um, you know pieces every day it seems like now highlighting. You know the the importance of of childcare to the economy and to families and to parents' ability to participate in the workforce. I think during the pandemic we saw uh, early childhood educators lifted up in a way that um, you know they have not always been. We saw uh, childcare teachers, for example, um, sort of categorized as first responders, right, and held up with you know emergency medical personnel and law enforcement, and you know in in this um, you know category of of great esteem because of how important they were to you know kind of keeping the the nation's response to the pandemic kind of up and up and running. So I think there's there's more attention to early childhood than there then there has been and as you mentioned you know accordingly there is a lot of um, you know federal stimulus money coming down to the states to support early education and you know through the child care block grant in particular um, you know but i think you know the the challenge i can tell you that you know that we are working with states on right now is that it is for, at least for right now, one-time funding. And so I think, you know, the policymakers that we're working with, um, you know, actively on this question um, are really uh, struggling through. And, and I, you know, I use the word struggling in, in all the all the best ways. I mean, I think they're really uh, thoughtfully um, sort of approaching, like, what is the best and highest use Of this money, recognizing also that, you know, ultimately to, to, Correct some of the things that, you know, the 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 pandemic has spotlighted. We're really going to need recurring funding. I mean, you know, uh, no secret to you that, you know, one of the major challenges of the field right now is the inequitable compensation and, and lack of benefits. Um, you know, for so many in the in the childcare workforce in particular. And I think we you know we're working with a lot of states. Who would love to figure out a way to crack that nut, but are you know really struggling through? I mean, it, it, it's typically a kind of a, a cornerstone principle of. Um, of budgeting that you know you don't use one-time funding to um, to take care of ongoing recurring costs, and so um, you know states are I think having to get real creative about how to how to use this money to meaningfully move their systems forward and incentivize um, things that they'd like to see happening, uh, with the recognition that you know at least until it um, until it becomes permanent, it's not.
1: You mentioned a lot of the positive challenges or struggles that folks around the country are, are are trying to deal with. One thing that we've known for probably 30 years, and it has become more and more evident, is the whole issue around compensation for child care providers and the gaps between public school pre-K programs or public school early care and education Programs and the teachers there, and those that are working in more of a, a licensed childcare facility or a setting, even in family homes. And uh, how do you view that, or how are you? What are you picking up on as far as states and their creativity on how to look at the compensation issues?
0: Well, I, I think this is the key issue in the in the field right now. I think you know we for as you mentioned for you know for decades we have had this question of um, you know how to retain high quality preschool teachers um, you know who might otherwise matriculate on up into working for school districts where they would get greater benefits and and compensation. But at this point, Kathy, I think we're we're not even. Um, the, seeing the field compete, uh, you know, solely with school districts. I think, you know, I, I wrote a piece recently for, uh, for the website early learning nation that, you know, that compared, you know, the, the median salary for childcare uh professionals in this country is $12.25 an hour. Uh, And that's not the average. That's that's the median, which means that, you know, half of the childcare workforce in this country is making less than that $12 amount. And compared that, you know, you may have seen recently I just uh, took special note of it. You know, McDonald's um, in their corporate-owned locations has raised starting pay to up to seventeen dollars an hour. Um, you know, to uh, to work at McDonald's, and so you know we're not only losing um, you know high-quality teachers out of out of preschool classrooms because they can go on to work for for public school districts. We're losing them to. To Walmart and Target and to McDonald's and to other you know um, other places in the community, particularly right now because of all of the the workforce shortages that have been brought on by the pandemic. So you know we're um, we're dealing with uh, you know this this horrible mismatch between you know children who are in the most critical formative years of development, who most needs stable, loving relationships. Um, and this, uh, you know, workforce that is is simply not adequately compensated. And the, you know, the end result there is, you know, I've seen estimates that as as many as, you know, 40% or more of childcare teachers exit their roles every year, right at the time that, you know, that ideally we need them there as a a stable, uh, loving force. So, you know, to your question about how are states approaching this, again, you know, I think that this is the big the big challenge that a lot of them are trying to face. I think, you know, there are some innovations happening. There are several states that we're working with, uh, you know, particularly up in the uh, the New England area that have come together. Uh, you probably know, you know, one of the things that, uh, that states did very extensively with the federal CARES Act uh, money that came down now, you know, six, eight months ago was, um, you know, in most states, uh, you know, a good chunk of that money was used to uh, provide sustainability grants for childcare providers, simply to help them keep their doors open. So there are states that are um, now innovating on on even that sustainability grant concept with the new American Rescue Plan, um, in the sense that you know they're 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 sustaining those grants, but they're starting to link them now uh, and and maybe incentivize. So the state isn't paying more to teachers. The states, you know, in most cases don't employ uh, child care providers, but the state is is doing its part to sort of incentivize greater pay within, within these private settings. And so what they're doing is they're taking the the sustainability grants, um, you know, you can continue at the same level you have been receiving, or if you are a center that has a starting pay at X number of dollars per hour, um, you know, then you may bump up to a little higher grant. And if you pay, you know, still a little bit more than that, there's an opportunity for an even higher grant here over the next couple of years. And so, you know, I think that's the kind of approach that we're seeing states take. I think, you know, there are states certainly that we have seen throughout the pandemic that have offered... Um, kind of uh, incentive pay or bonus pay, hazardous duty pay, it's been called different things in different, um, in different states. Uh, you know, there are also states that are looking at things like wage supplements, um, you know, through like the, uh, the wages uh, program out of North Carolina um, and, and using some of these dollars to help to supplement pay in ways that, you know, admittedly um, may well not be permanent. Um, but at, at least in the short term, are helping to to you know boost up those salaries and ideally retain high quality teachers in the classroom.
1: So I think what I hear you saying is, for the short term, within some creative uh, leveraging of funds, there are states that are managing to to address compensation at least partially. But that we still are back to what you said earlier in that how to work with policymakers and with legislators, congresspeople, to understand that there has to be more in terms of institutionalizing, if you would. The need to offer, the. I guess, to me, it's the respect of the early learning community and the fact that we really do, as you said, uh, need some of the best and brightest teachers at the earliest years And whether in the past, some people thought, well, that's just a baby. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a a CDA credentialed or a a college degree person to work with infants because they're just babies. And that was before the brain research and before all that we know now. It's just that we've got to catch up with what science is trying to tell us when we look at at policy. I want to talk to you a little bit about your seminar series, because, as I said earlier, you have been so fortunate and and wise in putting together some really good panels and, and individuals that have brought different perspectives to a lot of different things. What are some of the things that struck you or that will continue to as the series moves on that you feel would be lasting information? And can people go back and hear these? Are they archived is another question that I'd have for you.
0: Absolutely, they are. You know, so the, you know, the work that we do at the Hunt Institute is sort of primarily, um, you know, is, is focused on supports for state elected leaders, and so is a little bit less sort of public facing than uh, than some of the work that we've done during the pandemics as we work with with state lawmakers and, and governors but we recognize that during you know during this unusual time uh, you know when we weren't able to hold the you know as many in-person convenings for example that there was a real opportunity and a need really to talk about you know what was happening during this extraordinary time uh, in a way that we could do virtually um, and and do in a, a definite a much more open kind of public-facing um, sort of way, and so you know, we began relatively early on in the in the pandemic. There's a couple couple things actually that we did. You may, you might know we we created very early on um, a, a tracker online that kept tabs with all of the state actions relating to to child care um, you know early on you know including things like closures uh, but then you know eventually uh, public health guidance and the, you know the agency guidance that was being provided. And so we know that that was a, a tremendous resource that was used by, by policymakers across the country. But then you know we, we really have ramped up uh, this kind of webinar presence here over the over the past year and a half in a way that I suspect will you know will continue. I think we were doing slightly fewer, I think, when the, you know, when the world was almost entirely remote, um, you know, that we we were doing, you know, quite a few more of those, but we're still, you know, uh, delivering, we we call it early efforts, our early childhood um, webinar series. That happens at least once a month. Um, Frequently, we're doing those those twice a month, and they really have, um, you know, as you mentioned, taken off. Um, you know, a, a great participation from not only uh, kind of our core policymaker audience, but from early childhood uh, organizations and advocacy, and state systems, and philanthropists, and and classroom practitioners uh, across the country. And we've been able to host those on a you know a really wide variety of topics. Many of them, you know, really. Uh, kind of uh, timely and time-sensitive, related to you know individual needs during the during the pandemic. I think you know to me one that one that stands out as is, is very memorable uh, was uh, one that we a session we did back in October of uh, of 2020 on uh, developmentally appropriate practice during during this unusual time. I mean, no no secret to you or those listening. Uh, you know, we we have as a field spent. Years and years, um, sort of, you know, working to limit screen time and to suggest that there's, you know, there's kind of no such thing as a virtual pre-K um, in the same in the same sense that um, that children would benefit from in person. And then here over the past year, you know, we've been in a situation where we've got a lot of young kids who have accessed preschool, if you want to uh, still call it that, virtually, you know, online and/or these expectations for in-person learning that have looked, you know, particularly for early childhood teachers, very unusual and very foreign. You know, uh, you know, social distancing and plexiglass barriers and uh, you know, masking and face shields and I mean, you know, I always think of. Um, as a former kindergarten teacher, think very much of kind of that transition into school and what it's like to go to kindergarten for the first time to begin with. Um, you know, it's a it's it's a big transition to go into this big building full of strange adults. Uh, you know, for the first time, and and you know, and what that's like to do that. Uh, when you can't see anyone's face and um, you know uh, under under such unusual kind of stressful circumstances, so you know we we were able to you know pull folks together to talk about you know what is what does developmentally appropriate practice look like. Um, you know, during this unusual time. We, um, you know, we, we've we had sort of a mini series in there with a lot of the major philanthropists in the early childhood space sort of talking about how their priorities have, have shifted over time, uh, you know, have had um, great brain science researchers sort of talking about uh, the implications of this time had a great, uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, you know, had a, a great session on early literacy and, uh, you know, how programs like Reach Out and Read and First Book are adapting. Um, it actually included our first Olympic gold medalist, Christy Yamaguchi, uh, the Olympic figure skater. Uh, you might know, Kathy, has a, um, a wonderful foundation called Always Dream that is focused on early literacy as well. So you're right. We've, uh, you know, over, over now more than a year, you know, have been hosting regularly this, this this series. And it's, you know, it's just been very heartening uh, the way that it has brought people together and, you know, all of the response to it. So, it's definitely something that I see continuing and, um, you know, would definitely welcome, you know, as, as listeners are listening in on this conversation, you know, if there are, are topics or speakers that that folks would like to, um, to recommend, we're always open to, to getting those suggestions. Um, you know, they, uh, by and large, those webinars are archived. They end up on the Hunt Institute's youtube page so you know the vast majority of those are things that you can go back and and watch you know another way to to get at those is by following the hunt institute on facebook uh you probably know there's a kind of a video function on on facebook we tend to simulcast those um those Zoom webinars uh, live on Facebook in a way that uh, really kind of instantaneously after, you know, like within two or three minutes after the end of the webinar, uh, you're able to go back and, uh, you know, begin viewing that video under the videos tab on on Facebook. So, so you know, multiple different ways that you can go back and, and access those.
1: Well, I certainly hope our listeners will take advantage of that and uh, promise those of you who are listening, you will be informed and you'll also be challenged with some of the things you hear in, uh, in the context of wherever you live, then you can draw from what you heard to see how that could improve or enhance what you're trying to do as a parent or in, in early childhood care and education. Our Time, unfortunately, it's just about up, Dan. Is there anything else that you would like to bring to our attention or to talk to us? And, and again, from your national perspective, since you have been in a, a unique position, I would say, uh, given this horrific time with COVID, but also this time where we've received funding that most states were Uh, I can say the word surprised, (laughs) which really is not the word. It's bigger than surprised to receive. I know that some folks are worried about the capacity within states to handle all this money. And then the time frame it's, it's given. So, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I
0: do. I, you know, I think I, I would would maybe finish up by just sort of closing the loop to your your prior question about you know is this a, a turning point or a pivot point for the field? And I you know I I know I expressed some some concern earlier. I you know I would say Kathy. I I, I, gosh, I hope it is. And I think you know I think whether it is. Is now up to all of us. I think um, you know we um, we have had the needs of the field lifted up in a way that they never have been before. We have these resources in place on at least a one-time basis over the next couple of years to to be really thoughtful about what we might be doing uh, on behalf of young children and their families and the the early childhood professionals that that serve them and i think you know the real question now is how are you in your local context going to play a role in in making sure that we you know we learn the lessons of this time you know, I can tell you from our day-to-day work uh, with policymakers, um, they so value your input and your help. Um, you know, during this time, so you know, would definitely encourage. You know, everyone who's who's listening. I mean, if you're if you're listening to an early childhood podcast, obviously this is a passion of yours. Um, you know, don't don't let it end at, uh, at just listening in today. Uh, you know, investigate. You know, where you can get involved. Lots of states are putting together. Kind of advisory groups to to think through, uh, you know, the best and highest use of these dollars. Your policymakers are struggling through this in all the right ways, kind of you know, wanting to make sure that this unprecedented level of investment is something that is used wisely. So you know, I just say get in, get involved and let's make sure that we we learn the lessons from this time and 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 truly do treat it as the the tipping point that, that I think it can be.
1: Well, again, thank you so much, Dan, for being with us today. And uh, again, the Hunt Institute is a wonderful place with resources that you can listen to, you can read, and uh, hopefully you'll continue to stay connected with the Hunt Institute so you can take advantage of some of the upcoming seminars as well. So again, Dan, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We're going to now listen to a poem Dr. Melody Musgrove is going to provide us with and uh, hope that all of you will join us again very soon. Today's Lit Bit is about snow. This is Winter Morning Poem by Ogden Nash from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Winter is the king of showmen, turning tree stumps into snowmen and houses into birthday cakes and spreading sugar over lakes. Smooth and clean and frosty white, the world looks good enough to bite. That's the season to be young, catching snowflakes on your tongue. Snow is snowy when it's snowing. I'm sorry it's slushy when it's going. That's Winter Morning Poem by Ogden Nash from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye.
0: Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.